You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. On 95, the first annual conference of the Separation of School and State Alliance, held November 10, 11, and 12, 1995 in Arlington, Virginia. This presentation is copyrighted by the Separation Alliance, and permission is hereby granted if you would like to make gift copies for friends. And we shall uh, begin now by asking Doug Dewey of the National Scholarship Center to introduce E.G. West. So please welcome Douglas Dewey. Thank you. <laughs> Professor Edwin G. West received his Ph.D. in economics from the University of London. Now Professor Emeritus at Carleton University, Ottawa, Canada, he has been a visiting scholar at the University of California at Berkeley, Virginia Polytechnic Institute, and State University in Blacksburg. Emory University in Atlanta, and the University of Chicago. He is author of over a dozen books and approximately 100 articles in scholarly journals. Education and the State was first published in 1965. doesn't say here, but it's been republished by Liberty Press, and you can get it through them. Dr. West is also the author of Adam Smith, The Man and His Works, 1977, and Education and the Industrial Revolution, 1975. His main areas of interest include public finance, the economics of education, public choice, and the history of economic thought. Among his latest writings are Adam Smith and Modern Economics, From Market Behavior to Public Choice, 1990, and The Benthamites as Educational Engineers, The Reputation and the Record in History of Political Economy, 1992. At SEPCON 95, Dr. West will be the first recipient of the Alexis de Tocqueville Award for the Advancement of Education Freedom. If uh, E.G. West is the illustrious, greatly accomplished, much-renowned uh, elder statesman of what we can now safely dub the separation movement, uh, I must be uh, its most, his most admiring and unknown rookie. Uh, so. There is, I guess, a Taoist harmony here uh, in that I'm the, in the lowest rung of the, the uh, ladder, and uh, Professor West, I consider um, uh, my intellectual father in this. He has never met me until 25 minutes ago, um, but I am uh, probably the single largest illegal distributor of his work uh, through uh, <clears throat> the help of the Xerox machine, but I know I've also helped sell many copies uh, of Education in the States from Liberty Press as well. Uh, I first came a, a, across Dr. West through a footnote in, a very important footnote in Free to Choose, the 1980 uh, book by Milton and Rose Friedman, uh, while reading through the section on school vouchers. And um, Dr. Dr. Friedman credits uh, E.G. West with having changed his mind about the requirement or necessity for compulsory attendance laws or any funding whatsoever in education and uh, cites education in the state and some other areas. So I very quickly got a hold of those books and started devouring everything I could find and doing searches on E.G. West, and um, I never looked back. I'm inexpressibly in his debt uh, for the whole turn of my own career as a result of his work, and, um, and I know many others are as well. Uh, the only way I can show that gratitude is uh, in the work that I uh, am doing and intend to do, and uh, I also name my Pentium after him. I give you uh, Professor E.G. West. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm flattered by all this attention. 
Um, I, I was a bit surprised uh, when Marshall told me the time limits that we have. I thought I had a bit longer than I've been allocated. So if I gallop a little bit, please forgive me. Um, I've always been interested in the intellectual foundations of the debate on our topic. And since nobody else seems to be doing this uh, historical approach, I thought it appropriate if I said something in this area. There seems to be a consensus that the typical intellectual today is more ready than most to embrace government intervention in education. But what of the intellectuals who were advocates of laissez-faire in the 18th and 19th centuries? They would surely not approve of today's extent of intervention, but as I shall argue, their tendency to compromise seriously weakened the defenses against the growth of an all-encompassing state. Now, from all the early intellectual writers, I'm going to select the political economists, because this is an area I'm most familiar with. And here again, I have to limit myself to three people, uh, Tom Paine and uh, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill. I may not get round to John Stuart Mill because of the limitation, but I'll do my best. Now, first of all, Tom Paine. Uh, oh, let me say, let, let me backtrack it a little bit. Before I get on to Tom Paine, let me say something about all three writers. The political economists were insistent on one uh, aspect of education, and that is that it should never be free. There should always be price. There should always be a positive price. And with the positive price comes competition. Adam Smith, of all the three, was the most insistent on this, on this point. Because if people have to pay at the door of the school, they have to pay a price, and then they choose another school because they're dissatisfied, that brings pressure to bear on the existing school because they automatically lose revenue. With free education, with inverted commas, round that free all the time, have you noticed? With free education, uh, there's not that uh, pressure, there's not that incentive of uh, facing uh, public schools, uh, faced with losing, losing customers. But anyway, let me just repeat that point. All the political economists, except Karl Marx and, and Engels, all the economists of the 19th century did not want free education. Now, uh, to, um, to say something about Tom Paine, and I may say, uh, let me confess that these three writers, to some extent, have been heroes of mine, and I feel a little bit guilty with my criticisms that I'm going to put forth, but let me also add that the criticisms are partly from the benefit of hindsight. Tom Paine's Rights of Man, first published in 1791, uh, <clears throat> contained an agreement that the quantity of education, or con contained the observ observation, that the quantity of education was insufficient, but the shortfall was due not to the unwillingness of parents to educate their children adequately, but to the simple fact of poverty. But poverty in turn, Tom Paine tells us, was due almost ex entirely to excessive taxes on the poor. General taxation, and especially the excise tax, had been increasing substantially. 
in the late 18th century. The land tax paid by the aristocrats had, in contrast, been falling. Just over one half of the total revenue went on servicing the huge national debt. The remainder went on current government expenses that Payne believed uh, to be extravagant. And Payne insisted that money taken in taxation from average families was much more than enough to finance a basic education for their children. Much of this revenue, incidentally, came from the poor rates. Well, after producing an agenda for radical reduction of government expenditure, Payne set about discussing how to dispose of what he called the surplus. Instead of proposing simple reduction of taxes on the poor, to which the logic of his argument pointed, he advocated instead a conditional remission of taxes. The condition was that parents should send their children to school to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. And who should monitor such a voucher system? Payne had no qualms in proposing that it be done by the minister of the church parish. I quote Payne's words, the ministers of every parish, the ministers of every parish to certify jointly to an office for that purpose that this educational duty be performed, end of quote. Well then, after speaking up for the average man, therefore, Payne proceeded to indicate that ultimately he mistrusted the, the average man, in my interpretation anyway, because the implication was that if simple tax reduction was resorted to, the people could not be depended on to spend enough of their increased disposable incomes on education. Yet Payne's initial argument was that it was heavy taxation that was the main obstacle to private purchase of education. He had no evidence of the reluctance uh, of uh, parents to buy education, uh, no evidence on basic family preferences. And even, uh, even if he was doubtful of the ability and willingness of parents to spend on education, there remained the issue of liberty. Did Payne's rights of man not extend to freedom to decide uh, on the type and amount of education of his or her children? Unfortunately, however, Payne failed to address this question. Payne's voucher system, and he was probably the earliest originator of vouchers, um, his voucher scheme demanded schooling. Schooling. Yet this was not the only vehicle for education. Why then did Payne superimpose his own choice? And why should ministers of religion have the sole right to monitor the voucher program? Would they not increasingly modify the definition of education to become more and more in conformity with their particular religious creed? And what constraints were there on the size of the special office that Payne wanted the ministers to report to? He appears to have paid no heed at all to the counselling of William Godwin, father of Mary Shelley, uh, at the time. Uh, Godwin warned about the potential growth of bloated bureaucracies that would be encouraged by late 18th century proposals for what was called the national education. Well, so much for Tom Paine. Now on to Adam Smith. And again, I feel most guilty of all in this case because 
I'm usually favorably disposed to the father of economics. Uh, in his Wealth of Nations, uh, published in 1776, Smith, as you all know, argues that economic growth will best occur when natural liberty is respected and leads to specialization or participation in the division of labor. But when the division of labor reaches its fullest development, Smith tells us in the fifth book of the Wealth of Nations, when the division of, uh, of labor is, you know, is in its full, fullest flowering in the long run, the worker, and I quote Adam Smith's words, the worker becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become, end of quote. Uh, Smith's forecast of the degeneration of labor is based on one condition, that government fails to take some pains to prevent it. That's his words, fails to prevent, to take some pains to prevent it. The main task of government, Smith argued, was to secure the education of the common people. But since Adam Smith explains that government in his own country, Scotland, had for a long time actually taken the necessary pains, the implication is that the road to cultural destruction in Scotland in the 18th century was closed, firmly closed, at least in Scotland. In England was something else. Um, so, just like Tom Paine, Adam Smith revealed his mistrust of ordinary people when it comes to their duties to educate their children. But then if you read further, it becomes more complicated and a bit confused. In his lectures delivered to students in Glasgow in the 1760s, Smith is more explicit. Once his market economy fully, fully establishes the division of labor, and I quote him again, the minds of men are contracted and rendered incapable of elevation. Education is despised or at least neglected. That's what the market does to people. The cultural effects is astonishing, I think, when you first read those words. Uh, he observes that in contrast, people of some rank and fortune have money to afford education. And Smith declares, it is otherwise with the common people. They have little time to spare for education. Their parents can scarce afford to maintain them, even in infancy. Well, consider this point. If it's poverty, and if parents can't afford the education, then how can you, Mr. Smith, tell us they don't want education? How can you tell us they despise education? You can't have it both ways. If they can't afford the education, they're not having it. If the main reason for not having it is money, then that's it. You can't say it's their preferences. You can't say that they despise education. Um, a lot of my three writers make this uh, kind of error. But I say that Smith is a bit confused beyond this. Um, you see, <clears throat> his statement uh, includes the fact that the Scots had passed legislation um, supporting a, a 
parochial school, one school in every parish, one school in every parish. And he says that this legislation had made most people in Scotland at the time uh, able to read and a large number able to write. And um, we, have to, we have to ask ourselves in retrospect whether this was due to the legislation or whether it's due to something else. Uh, the Scottish Act of 1696 laid down that a school should be erected in every parish and that teachers' salaries be met by a tax on local uh, landowners and, and tenants. This schooling, however, was not made compulsory by law, and neither was it made free. The parental fees made up a big part of the teacher's salaries and were paid by every social class. The Scots did not have free and compulsory education, uh, schooling rather, until about the same time as England did in the 1880s. Now, the Morsmith championed the Scots parochial system, therefore, the more implicit credit he was paying to parents. Why? Because parents are paying fees for that parochial education. And they weren't compelled to go to school. Here they were, without compulsion, paying money at Smith's parochial school. There was some subsidy, sure, the, the school building was subsidized by local uh, landowners, but uh, it wasn't free. I mean, there were other costs besides the building. Um, so, the parents' action then in voluntarily paying fees uh, to purchase education at the parish schools was obviously a tribute to parents in Smith's own time, despite his contrary statement uh, in his lectures that education would be despised when the market system uh, flourished, after the division of labor was well established. More interesting still, more interesting still, this is an economic history point, it was the fee-paying private schools, not the parochial schools, but the private schools that were bearing the main burden of Scottish education in terms of number of scholars. For every one Scottish parochial school pupil in 1818, there were two non-parochial school pupils. And the non-parochial school pupils, private school pupils, outnumbered the parochial pupils by much more than two to one in the growing industrial areas of Glasgow. The very areas where Smith argued there was greater need for schooling because parents would despise education in those industrial places. <clears throat> and it's a bit odd to find all this in Smith because generally he, he prefers private institutions, private incentives, and uh, uh, property ownership, property rights, and that sort of thing. He had no confidence in the economic judgment of uh, human beings in collective organizations in which responsibility was separated from ownership. Well, in the private schools I've just talked about, the non-parochial schools, which were flourishing, um, responsibility was typically not separated from ownership uh, because they were privately owned schools. And their growth, the growth of these privately owned schools, but if you didn't like them, you called them private adventure schools. That was the, that was the 
term given to opponents. But the growth of these schools, Smith might well have argued, was in no small part due to the natural liberty that A, allowed them to exist, and B, created the growing incomes that helped create the demand for them. It's true that private schools often received private endowments or subsidies. When somebody dies and leaves money to a school, that's uh, called an endowment. Uh, and Smith was rather critical of excessive private endowments. And some people here, when you start private voucher systems, might want to learn a bit more about Smith's views on this. You can have excessive private endowment, especially if that endowment goes to the salary of the teacher, because that makes his income independent of his efforts in front of his customers. If you're getting a guaranteed income from over there, you don't care so much of the part of the income that's coming from your customers. That, was, roughly speaking, was Smith's uh, objection. So don't overdo this endowment business. Uh, uh, keep enough margin there for the parents to pay out of their own pockets. Um, well, the substantial growth in the Industrial Revolution towns of Scotland, such as Greenock, Paisley, and Glasgow, was accomplished largely by the so-called, uh, as I said, adventure schools or profit for-profit establishments. And the practice of endowing schools was much more prevalent south of the border in England. Um, well, that's about 20 minutes, uh, Marshall. I haven't got to John Stuart Mill. Maybe a bit later on I may have time to say something about him, but perhaps i better stop right there for now. Is that all right? Thank you, Dr. West. Um, I, when I discovered the libertarian philosophy many, many years ago, Dr. West's work was one of the most influential uh, works that, that caused me to start thinking about separating school and state. It's quite an honor to be here commenting on a talk by him. I, I'd like to make just a short comment about comparing the compromisers of the 18th and 19th century and the compromisers of today. Um, you know, Smith was one of the first ones, Adam Smith and, and, and Mill and, and Payne and Ricardo were one of the first ones to, to develop this idea of human liberty. Uh, for many centuries, freedom was described as simply the absence of physical restraint. If, if you were not held, if you were not in jail, you were considered free. And along comes Smith and says, no, freedom means more than that. It means more than the absence of physical restraint. It means the right to engage in an enterprise without a license or, or to accumulate wealth without state interference, to pursue education without interference. But I, I think it's important to recognize that these early thinkers were looking through a glass very darkly when it comes to developing what this idea of freedom is. They were, they were among the first, the first discoverers, if you will. Uh, a, a classic mistake that they all made, of course, was on the labor theory of value, uh, that, the, that the value of an item is based on how much labor goes into producing it. Well, it, it depends on people a hundred years later, Menger or Valois, to, to say, look, the value of an item is not based on how much labor goes into producing it, it's based on how the person perceives it. And the point is, is that sometimes it takes later thinkers to improve upon the thinker's that first came up with the idea, that first began developing the idea. Uh, 200 years later, 
after we've had time to study the ideas uh, of the founders or the 19th century political economists and uh, read later thinkers, Mises and Hayek, West, we, we don't have the room for excuse like the early thinkers did. Uh, so that when today people advocate the compromises, uh, the vouchers, the charter schools, uh, what is the excuse for that? Uh, clearly, the, the, the voucher people fall into two camps. Uh, those that truly believe in vouchers as an end, which means that they do say that the state has a role in education, or they say, I cannot let people know my true feelings about abolishing public schooling totally, getting the state totally out of education, because people won't take me seriously. I won't be credible. Well, how much respect can you give to that person? A person that violates all standards of integrity, all standards of principle, in order to be popular, to be accepted. And I think it's, it's up to us that, that have broken through, to, who have reached a higher level of awareness, a, a higher level of consciousness, to stick with principle. That the state has absolutely no role in education whatsoever. That compulsory attendance laws can be repealed. School taxes can be repealed. And all state involvement in education can be removed. Throughout history, people have responded in monumental ways to ideas and to ideals and to principles. And I think it's up to us to improve on these thinkers that we're looking through a glass darkly and carry humanity up to the highest levels of educational freedom that we've ever seen. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Let me uh, uh, second uh, Bumper's uh, opening statement about uh, the honor it is to share a platform with uh, Professor West. You can't be a libertarian very long before running across Dr. West's name and then looking up uh, articles and books because you know immediately there's something significant there, not just on education, but uh, his work on Adam Smith, which is uh, was a great source of uh, information and inspiration to me. Uh, when when uh, Professor West was, uh, was going through how these thinkers uh, mentioned uh, or believed that the poor what, what they used to call the lower orders, I guess, uh, didn't value education. I thought of a, a very charming quotation by James Mill, father of John Stuart Mill, which is in Professor West's book. I wish I had the text of it here, but uh, to the effect that um, the uh, around London, where poor people lived, uh, J James Mill noticed that even when families were in such sad straits that they could only scrape together some uh, potatoes for, for food for weeks at a time, they still managed to come up with money to send their kids to school. Uh, blast, and this is this was decades before there was compulsory universal schooling in England. Uh, blasting to smithereens this idea that the lower orders uh, were not interested in such things. Uh, one of the things I came across in uh, working on my own book was that there was great concern in England that the lower orders, uh, because they were uh, literate, were uh, too uh, readily reading Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, and this was seen as something of a threat to the uh, higher orders. And that, that uh, this sort of goes against the idea that the government and, and the, uh, the elite of a nation is always interested in, in having an educated population. Uh, the, they have a long record of, of uh, actually dis discouraging education, uh, taxing newsprint, for example, uh, passing laws uh, prohibiting uh, slaves from learning to read, things of that nature. Uh, I also share uh, Professor West's uh, view about taking heroes and, and pointing out some of the warts, but of course, uh, 
I guess uh, to some extent uh, they have them. Uh, two heroes I'll mention, uh, who unfortunately also follow in this uh, line. Uh, Richard Cobden, the great uh, free trader and uh, advocate of non-interventionism in foreign policy in the 19th century England. Uh, a great hero of mine. I always was drawn to him first because of his work on uh, free trade uh, and then how he tied it into uh, free trade being uh, a great facilitator of peace and a great uh, force for harmonizing uh, people's interests around the, the world. Uh, it saddened me to learn that he was an advocate of, uh, of government schooling, uh, as I understand it, on the grounds of some sort of public uh, goods uh, theory. I don't know how explicit it was, but the idea being that the, there are benefits to education that go beyond the student, that spill over into the general community, and therefore the community, uh, and the community won't, uh, I mean, people in the community by themselves won't pay for uh, this child's education, but nevertheless, they'll reap benefits. Uh, by the way, if you want to see that uh, argument uh, t totally obliterated, I refer you to uh, Professor West's book, uh, Education in the States, just a masterly uh, total dismantling of any such uh, uh, theory. Uh, and then finally, I'll close on this, uh, Thomas Jefferson, a hero of mine, probably a hero of many people in the room. Uh, it might uh, sadden you to learn that he was also an advocate of state-sponsored schools, although with some uh, uh, caveats. Uh, for example, he was against compulsory attendance. He thought that taxes should be used to support schools. Uh, I think the, I don't believe he wanted the government to actually operate schools, but nevertheless support them. Uh, but he was against compulsory attendance. Uh, as he put it, it is better to tolerate the rare instance of a parent refusing to let his child be educated than the shock of the common feelings and ideas by the forcible carrying away and education of the infant against the will of the father. Uh, now, Jefferson also had a more modest idea of what education should be, simply uh, more or less teaching uh, children to read and write. He didn't have sort of the social engineer's vision, but uh, Joel Spring, the... Uh, End of side one, side two is queued up. This, the temptation of using the educational system to perpetuate what he considered to be political truth. Uh, very often when I do uh, interviews, radio interviews about this, people will say, uh, uh, well, can you name a country where there is a separation of school and state? And I said, uh, it would be very surprising to find one. I mean, what politician could resist uh, gaining hold of such a sensitive function in a society and using it to shape uh, the, the young? I mean, you know, the idea is almost unthinkable that a politician could possibly resist that. So it's not surprising we don't find uh, find this, which means we have a lot of work to do if we're ever to uh, bring this about. Uh, I think I will end on that note. I, uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, I know uh, Professor West will probably have a chance to say something about it. He's a very strange bird on this and many other issues. I, he's never been one of my great heroes. Uh, I do like the line in, uh, in his uh, the nice little book, partly at least nice, uh, on liberty, where he said, uh, he who knows only his own side of a case doesn't know it very well. Uh, and I think that's what, something we should keep in mind, if I can make a strategic point here, that we, it, it would do us all very well to be reading the other side and know, knowing how they defend state education so we can be that much better in uh, refuting them. ago when we did the incredibly smooth uh, uh, moderatorless segue from Dr. West to, uh, to our responders. And thank both of you. But I do feel compelled to uh, squeeze in a little um, plug for some of the material that you're going to find in the uh, program book. If you go to the green um, tab 
you will find good people, bad system. If you go to the about uh, third sheet at St. Louis Post-Dispatch on the uh, right-hand page in the uh, Fresno B, I think, on the uh, verso there. And uh, in, in keeping with, uh, with Thomas Jefferson's uh, comments about compelling, uh, I do want to read this into the record. This is the Fresno B, November the 6th, 1995. Headline, Parents Get Schooled in Embarrassment, Attendance Up. Five suspects were arrested, handcuffed, and paraded before the media at a public arraignment on misdemeanor charges of failing to appear at a school truancy hearing. The sweep in Visalia was designed to be embarrassing. Officers served warrants at parents' workplaces and led them out in handcuffs in front of co-workers. Uh, school representative Debbie Terry said, attendant specialist said, it's been very positive for us. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll do it again. It definitely worked. So, uh, you know, we're here to help you. Uh, you go to jail. <laughs> uh, further, uh, I encourage everyone to get a copy of E.G. West's book and to uh, and get it in, uh, endorsed. <laughs> and get it endorsed. How's that? And get it uh, autographed by Dr. West. But you will find the, uh, the Cliff Notes version to uh, that in the large uh, segment there, uh, Chapter 2. And there is his, uh, the uneasy case for state education in which he takes part, uh, indeed, uh, in that piece, just what uh, Sheldon was talking about. Now we're going to have 10 more minutes from uh, Dr. West, and then we will open it to a question and answer period from the audience. So, uh, Dr. West. Okay. Dr. West will have 10 minutes more to speak. That would be fine. Could it, could it wait 10 minutes until the question and answer period, and you could have reserved the very first question? Excellent. Richard Mitchell has a reservation on the first question. Who has the second one going once, going twice, Doug Dewey? Do we hear the third? All right. There's the third Don Pavel. All right. Come on oh, up, Dr. West. Right. Ten minutes. <laughs> Whoops, wait a minute. Uh-oh. I'm bringing all this technology with me. There you go. Let me just put this. That's right. Where's John Peter Gatto when we need a technician? Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Now you're doing it. <laughs> well, can you hit me right? Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Uh, John Stuart Mill, just a few words about him, I'll be as quickly as possible. Um, like um, Adam Smith and Tom Paine, Mill also has the reputation of a serious advocate of freedom for the individual. In um, Mill's celebrated essay on liberty, published in 1859, uh, he asserted that the sole end for which mankind are warranted individually or collectively in interfering with the liberty of action of any other of their number is self-protection. That the only purpose for which power can rightfully be exercised over any member of the civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others, end of quote. Uh, the interesting part of that quote is the last three words, to prevent harm to others. And you ask the question, who is to define what that harm is? And we find Mill, uh, including the, the wrong kind of education that parents give to their children, wrong in his opinion, as being a kind of a harm. So it, it, it's been in its which that part of it. But anyway, leaving that on one side. Uh, with regard to education, Miller scores many points with modern uh, libertarians and because of his famous remark in his uh, essay on liberty, uh, which I will quote, a general state education is a mere contrivance for molding people to be exactly like one another. 
In proportion as it is efficient and successful, it establishes a despotism over the mind, leading by natural tendency to one over the body. End of quote. That's, those are powerful words. I think Joseph would be impressed with that. Uh, but it's usually forgotten that Mill was equally critical of the alternative scenario, the free market in education. He's critical of the government education, but he's critical of free market education too. His reason was, quoting his famous word, the uncultivated cannot be competent judges of cultivation. The uncultivated cannot be competent judges of cultivation. Uh, in other words, or in my words, uh, market failure occurs in this case because, and I'm quoting Mill again now, persons requiring improvement, having an imperfect, altogether, or, or, or altogether erroneous conception of what they want, the supply called forth by the demand will be anything but what is essentially required. End of quote. Mill knew what was essentially required in his own mind. As to the empirical evidence of what the real world education market was like in the 19th century, John Stuart Mill seems to have been as misinformed as Adam Smith. Mill protested that and I'm quoting from his Principles of Political Economy, published 1846, he protested that even in quantity, schooling is and is likely to remain altogether insufficient. While in quality, though with some slight tendency to improvement, it is never good except by some rare accident, and generally so bad as to be little more than nominal. End of quote. Now, I found that a very sweeping statement, and I was looking for the evidence on which he based that statement. And the only thing I can come up with is some work by the Manchester Statistical Society, on which his friends in the utilitarian movement were uh, measuring all kinds of things. And uh, the founder of that society was James Kay, who was later, in effect, the first Minister of Education. Uh, and I have previously subjected this work, the Manchester Statistical Society's work on education, I've subjected it to uh, uh, criticism. And the, the statistics are very dubious indeed. And as for the definition of quality, you find them um, putting a great weight on uh, denominational uh, knowledge and moral values which uh, will be debated by many people. But anyway, Mill referred hardly at all to one of the major outputs of education, namely literacy. And from the copious research on this issue that has accumulated since Mill's time, a leading historian expert by the name of R.K. Webb has concluded that by the late 1830s, that's before Mill was writing his principles, the late 1830s, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the working classes were already literate. If they became literate in those numbers, how did they become literate? Despite John Stuart Mill's dislike of general government provision of education in government schools, 
he was willing to compromise. The first part of the compromise was his consent to some government schooling. In the end, after a lot of uh, deliberation, he said, okay, yeah, there's the room for some government schooling. And I quote, though a government therefore may, and in many cases ought to, establish schools and colleges, it must neither compel nor bribe any person to come to them. End of quote. Well, a state school should exist, if it exists at all, Mill went on to say, as one among many competing experiments, carried on for the purpose of example and stimulus, to keep the others up to a certain standard of excellence. End of quote. But it's interesting, isn't it, that without any evidence, Mill presumed that the state schools would always be the superior pacemakers. And openly uh, forbidding government to bribe people to come to its schools hides the fact that they are financed by taxation. The schools are financed by taxation on people. And some would equate this with a bribery of taxpayers. Anyway, the second part of Mill's compromise was his insistence that education should be made compulsory. But notice that education should be made compulsory, not schooling. Uh, Mill is rather uh, more discriminating in this distinction, so we give him credit for that. Education should be made compulsory. And he proposed to support the compulsion of education with a system of enforcement of public examinations to which children from an early age were to be submitted. And quote, once in every year the examination should be renewed with a gradually extending range of subjects so as to make the universal acquisition and retention of a certain minimum of general knowledge virtually compulsory, end of quote. Well, uh, Joshua Mill advocated Jeremy Bentham's system of examinations as the price to be paid for the right to vote. Before you get the franchise, you've got to pass the exam to show you're literate. How about that? <laughs> um, strictly speaking, this solution did not remove the power of the state over education, did it? It only narrowed it down to the power of those officials who were to be appointed on behalf of the state to set the examinations. Mill thought that this would not matter so long as the examinations were confined to the instrumental parts of knowledge and to examination of facts only. But the fact that Mill didn't enter into further details as to what was to constitute a certain minimum of knowledge enabled him to escape many of the serious difficulties that lay beneath this surface of this plan. Who was to determine the subject to be taught? How would one choose between, say, elementary political economy and geography? Could powers of censorship be easily exercised? Uh, I suppose that certain individuals had aversions to certain subjects. Mill himself had particularly strong objection to the teaching uh, of church teaching. Teaching by and the church had a big role in education at the time. And, um, and he insisted that national education should be purely secular. Well, we have here, it seems, the overtones of the intellectual paternalists, and certainly such treatment of other people's opinions seem to contradict the spirit of Mill's book on liberty. Um, <clears throat> and and I, let me, I've nearly finished. I come to another quote which puts Mill side by side with Smith and Payne. Here it is. Uh, in England, elementary instruction cannot, this is 1848, Elementary instruction cannot be paid for at its full cost from the common wages of unskilled labor. 
and would not if it could. And would not if it could be paid for. If they could afford it, they would not. Like Tom Paine. Where's his evidence? Um, so, where education concerned, Paine, Smith and Mill were not full-blown libertarians, I think. Rather, they were almost self-appointed liberators. Educational liberators. They wanted to liberate the masses into a world of, of culture, their conception of culture, and of reason, their reason. And they were willing to make significant uh, compromises. And at this distance in time, uh, and, and I really have finished now almost, <laughs> another libertarian, uh, one who was a contemporary of Payne and Smith, back to Mary Shelley's father, seems to have been much more insightful and skilled in the art of prediction. William Godwin, who was a philosopher, not a political economist, wrote the following cautionary words in 1796. Before we put so powerful a machine, education, under the direction of so unambiguous an agent, it behoves us to consider well what it is that we do. Government will not fail to employ it, to strengthen its hands, and perpetuate its institution. Thank you. We have 11 minutes remaining, and uh, if memory serves, uh, uh, Professor uh, Richard Mitchell, uh, publisher of the Underground Grammarian, has the uh, first uh, question. And if you will, please wait for the uh, microphone. There you go. It's a trivial question. Uh, it requires only a yes or no answer. I would like to put it to all three uh, participants. But, of course, it must be seen now in a different light since uh, a recent quotation from Mill. I, ha I have noticed, I, I almost counted, that all three of you, primarily the responders, though, continuously used the word schooling and education as though they had for you the same meaning. I would ask simply, do they have for you the same meaning? No. Then why did Thank you, you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and now the uh, follow-up question. Uh, <laughs> the dagger for before. Go ahead. You wanted to ask a follow-up question. Well, Mill... Uh, himself made the discrimination in the quotation that you used two, two quotations ago. And I'm sorry to ask this question because Bill Bennett and I used to be friends until I asked him this question and we haven't spoken now in quite some time because I think on the answer to that question, what do we mean by education and what do we mean by schooling, lies the whole worth of your enterprise here. And I'll like to address myself in some degree to it tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my, my yes, we have a couple of responders to that. Uh, go ahead, Bumper. Well, my excuse is that I was publicly schooled and educated. <laughs> I would like to say I didn't make the two coincidental. I didn't make the two coincidental no, education beliefs. No, I didn't make two coincidental. Let me let me let me quote. Uh, um, Mark Twain was once asked about his education, he confessed. Yes, I've had a public schooling, but I never let it interfere with my education. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Sheldon. I could plead the lateness of the hour for my uh, uh, lack of care about those terms, but I, I'm coming in more and more to share the view of Pat Berenga, who is carrying on John Holt's work. Uh, I'm a great fan of the late John Holt, who was a wonderful radical critic of uh, schooling. And... Uh, Pat uh, 
believes that the word education is, uh, is almost uh, as bad now as the word school, because education is now just a, it's sort of a magic word. If you say something's educational, it disarms everybody and it's good. Educational television, educational software, educational games. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a talisman now that you, you, know, you wear around your neck uh, to, get, to give it a blessing. I think we ought to maybe talk about you know, self-directed uh, learning. Education still leaves the, uh, perhaps leaves the student passive. I'm going to educate you, rather than the student is going to learn. Let's move, yeah, let's move to a, uh, another question, and I think, uh, Doug, passing on his, uh, yes, Bob, and uh, the micro microphone, please, to Bob Thompson. There we go. Uh, having heard uh, Jacob Hornberger speak before, and <laughs> if you listen to both the responders and, and to Dr. West, and then this first question from the floor, you arrive at the point in time where every movement of this type must make its decision. And that is a precision of language. Otherwise, you allow the other side to not only set the agenda, but to decide the terms on which it's going to be debated. And I think this constant confusion between the term education and schooling with respect to a government school, particularly, is an invitation or an invitation to become submerged in the bureaucratic jargonese uh, that has already been highly developed by those who seek to perpetuate uh, uh, the status quo. And I would suggest that uh, the responders particularly address themselves to the compromise. Jacob mentioned the compromise of the 18th century versus the compromisers of today. The difference in originality of thought, there is going to be a certain degree of incoherence, I think you said. But I would also suggest... Bob, could you bring your question to a... Close well, lawyers have a hard time bringing questions. Yes, and moderators have a hard <laughs> time controlling lawyers. Uh, but I think this. I think the only well, I think the single question is: if it's not education in school, perhaps Sheldon can suggest another uh, uh, platform, if you will, upon which to build this discussion. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes or no? <laughs> I was just kidding. No, I well. I don't know, maybe I'm losing the point here. I wonder if, if, a, if a mountain wasn't being made out of a molehill. Uh, certainly education and school uh, don't apply to the, uh, refer to the same exact things. I want to separate uh, the state from school and education. So that doesn't give me a problem. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think we're caught up in that. Uh, certainly you can learn without going to school, and you can go to school and not learn. So I accept the distinctions that are being made here, but I'm just not sure where this is headed. Uh, <laughs> yes, please. We have a uh, two people. Okay, so uh, uh, Charlene, Charlene, we just say wait for the microphone, microphone to Charlene, and then to uh, uh, Fred. Okay, uh, and it, uh, make it quick. We're running in three minutes now. It it just sounds to me like, it, from what I can understand, is that it's not really so much whether it's education or schooling or any of that. It's just a matter of who decides. Obviously, it's whether or not it's the parents' decision or whether or not it's taken away from the parents to be made by the state. And I think the ultimate question is, uh, are children also in charge of themselves? Do children make decisions or do parents make decisions for children? It's, so I think that that's really the debate here is who's, whose decision is it? Thank you, Charlene. That was Charlene Holt. I want to make a quick, quick Fred, comment. Uh, introduce yourself. Please. Yeah, Fred Carpenter from Tyndall, South Dakota. I think uh, Sheldon might have hit on it. Um, I went through a, quite a, a battle in my special education co-op between mastery learning and individualized learning. 
and ACE curriculum and all the certain, I mean, all the curriculum, whether it's, you know, what side you're on is, is you want kids to, to, to learn, individual learning, whether it's effective education uh, from the school side or academic achievement, you know, no matter where you're at, it's individualized learning. I mean, that's where I'm, so mastery learning is not a, a curse word in, in, a, in a real sense. Thank you. Uh, George was next, and then Andrew, and, uh, and then I'm pretty sure we shall be out of time and, uh, on this particular segment. Um, George. George Schwapak from Abilene. George Schwapak, Abilene, Texas. A couple of comments that all three of you uh, talked about was that where these people failed was their belief that the poor wouldn't want education. But I think we have to some, to some extent recognize there are some values that we don't understand, and sometimes it appears the value is to not get education. And if we, if we treat that as a non-existent value, we're setting ourselves up again to miss out on another important point. Yes, and an example I would like to offer you, and everybody who talks about this, you say, you mean like the Amish who don't want their children to go to school past the eighth grade because it'll uh, hurt them, and, uh, and we should force the Amish to, uh, to go to uh, a high school? And all of a sudden, because, wait a minute, the Amish have pretty good PR. Um, so that you, you really stump them by bringing up the Amish as uh, people who have a different view, worldview, as to what is education and all. And uh, I think we're going to be excited to hear what uh, Alan Carlson has to say tomorrow on, uh, on how separation of school and state will actually help struggling families um, as opposed to what we have now. It was, no, it was George. Oh, well, uh, Ed's got the microphone, and uh, Andrew, uh, you can ask a question sometime uh, tomorrow. <laughs> right. So Ed will yeah. be our final question. Hi, uh, Ed Nagel here, and I like what um, you had to say about quoting Mill, the unculturated, uh, uncultivated, see, cannot be competent judges of cultivation, right? Yeah. Uh, my concern is that's true. Let's give him that. The reverse is also true, the vice versa. And that's the problem. And again, it's a question of who's in control. I agree with Char Charlene, who decides? as to what our agenda is. My cultivation is better than your cultivation. Yanny, yanny, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it's just a bunch of grown-up five-year-olds, uh, as far as I can tell. Ladies and gentlemen, let us thank our uh, panel. Stay in your seats here, but uh, let's thank our panel. And our speaker, E.G. West. this presentation. For more information about the Separation Alliance, please call or write us at 4578 North 1st, number 310, Fresno, California, 93726. Or phone at area code 209-292-1776. Or fax at 292-7582. Also, you might like to visit our webpage at www.sepschool.org. Thank you.